Keeping Democracy Alive with Bert Cohen. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. The USA, which belongs to all of us. This land is your land. This land is my land. And there are two major parties that, well, they fight every now and then. Give them a stimulus and see what the response is. You give the Democrats the same stimulus, they'll say one thing, and the Republicans generally say something else. It's usually no or never or some nasty things like that, but the Democrats usually propose, well, something anyway. Doing something is better than doing nothing, right? What about our greatest Democratic president ever, Franklin Delano Roosevelt? I don't think there's much disagreement that he was the greatest Democratic president. Now, Lyndon Johnson had a lot going for him, little problem called Vietnam, but Franklin Roosevelt got a lot done and really brought some very big benefits to the United States. What would Roosevelt be doing now? What would he say? Our guest today, Stephen Herzenberg, who has been executive director of the Keystone Research Center since the organization began operating in 1996. Well, first off, before we get more into your bio, Stephen, thank you for being with us. And what is the Keystone Research Center? Uh, My pleasure. Uh, The Keystone Research Center is a progressive economic think tank. Uh, Really, since the early 90s, across the country, at the state level, you've had a lot of different uh, nonprofit think tanks emerge uh, uh, that um, are concerned about uh, the erosion of the middle class, that are trying to uh, advance uh, ideas for how we can have an economy that's not only strong, but one that delivers again for people generally, for Main Street. And so broadly speaking, you know, we do that kind of research, what's going on, how do we do better, and then working with different folks to move the policies that would, that would improve the situation. And make that those ideas into reality. That sounds uh, very useful. I wonder how often people with political power actually implement the information that you give them. At least you can try. Well, uh, we, we know we've, we've actually been lucky in a number of cases. Uh, we helped, uh, helped enact a higher minimum wage in Pennsylvania a couple of years back. We've worked very closely with actually two administrations, uh, Republican and Democratic, to reform skill development programs in Pennsylvania so they work better for businesses and also for workers at all levels. So, I mean, there are certainly days, Bert, when you feel like you're in the wilderness and no yeah. one listens to you. And sure. the scale, you know, but, but there are also days where 
in fact, you you find out that people do care about ideas, um, and they do care about evidence, and that you're able to to make some progress. Facts. What a concept. <laughs> Facts are such inconvenient things. Well, uh, a little bit more of your bio. Uh, Steve Hertzenberg holds a Ph.D. in economics from MIT. Before joining the Keystone Research Center, uh, Steve taught at Rutgers University, worked at the U.S. Congressional Office of Technology Assessment and the U.S. Department of Labor. While there, he served as assistant to the chief negotiator on the labor side of the agreement to the North American Free Trade Agreement. We could spend a whole show talking about that and what it's We done. could. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun, even if it didn't work out the way I hoped. But uh, go ahead. <laughs> trade. Trade is such a big issue. His publications include Reinventing the U.S. Labor Movement, Inventing Post-Industrial Prosperity, a progress report which came out in 05, New Roles for a New Economy, Employment, and Opportunity in Post-Industrial America, well, again, Steve, thanks very much for being with us. I want to look at uh, what FDR would do now. My favorite political button uh, is something I picked up at the Hyde Park Roosevelt Museum. It says, uh, we want FDR again. We need FDR again. Unfortunately, he's still dead. Uh, the deepest economic contraction since the Great Depression. Uh, since the start of what you call the Great Recession, the U.S. economy has shed more than 7 million jobs. And right. we, we all know somebody who's, who's lost a job and who's on suddenly a very difficult time in their lives when it wasn't expected. Now, Franklin Roosevelt did a heck of a lot for our country some 75 years ago. And you say that it's time to build on his legacy with ideas for long-term recovery equal to the scale of today's recession. You say, I keep seeing this image of Franklin Roosevelt rolling over in his grave. Why is that? Well, um, I mean, the biggest reason is is that the discussion about a rescue plan for the middle class um, isn't yet at the scale it, it, it needs to be given the problems we're facing, right? So we know that when Wall Street in the fall of 2008 suddenly faced a crisis within a matter of not that many weeks. We were putting together a $700 billion rescue package for Wall Street. You know, and in the end, even if I didn't like uh, some of the ways that was done, I understood that we didn't want to have our financial system collapse. Um, but then when it comes to the job market, we have a situation where Really, for a decade, uh, working people haven't benefited barely at all from economic growth, even prior to the recession. If you go back 30 years, there's been a vast increase in economic inequality in this country since about 1979. Um, uh, and, and yet, when it comes to either the short-term problem of joblessness uh, or the long-term challenge of how do we get back to to prosperity that's broadly shared and consistent with American values? Um, you know, we really we really haven't had the discussion, you know, that that we need to have. So, you know, part of what we're trying to do is encourage uh, that kind of conversation. It's absolutely vital that we stepped forward and did something called the Recovery Act, President Obama not long after being in office, guided um, through Congress uh, <coughs> uh, legislation that, 
that helped ensure that we would prime the pump of our failing economic engine. And so because of that prompt action and the spending on infrastructure and uh, longer unemployment benefits and uh, tax breaks for struggling families and a series of other initiatives, some some investment in the green economy. Because of that action, we have stopped at the free fall of our economy, but we haven't yet got to the discussion about, hey, wait a minute, the middle class is under assault, has been eroding for really several decades. How are we going to rebuild the middle class? Because in the end, a strong middle class is absolutely essential to American values, right? I mean, this is the country where people can rise from any station and become anything. This was the the society that invented democracy, uh, that the first society that wasn't, uh, didn't have feudalism that, that, you know, preceded the the creation of this great um, capitalist democracy. And so we absolutely need to hold on to a strong middle class, not because that's not only because that's fair to people, but because that's that's core to the identity of of America and to its values. Well, it certainly is, and I, I, I wish I could remember verbatim the quote from Thomas Jefferson about how essential a middle class is to a republic and to a democracy. That where you don't have a middle class, as we've seen in so many feudal societies. Uh, things, you know, get awful ugly when there's just a a few very, very wealthy people and a lot of people who don't have money, man, uh, sometimes blood flows in the streets for sure. Absolutely. And and Jefferson was stunningly prescient when it comes to worrying about manufacturing. So so he, he sort of anticipated that the growth of a concentrated manufacturing sector would create huge gaps between the top and the rest, really anticipated the Gilded Age. Again, the good news is the 1930s, the New Deal, was all about taking that phenomenal economic power that was built up through the rise of mass production in this country and, and built up through you know uh, the rise of U.S. Steel and General Motors and General Electric and on you know and Westinghouse and on down the list and and um, so we had this potential prosperity by the 1930s but we hadn't figured out how to share that broadly and really that's what we did in the New Deal uh, I mean Roosevelt's uh, uh, key policies really helped make sure that the middle class could share in that fantastic manufacturing economy. Uh, that's when we invented the middle class. So, the, I mean, fundamentally, we have the same basic challenge now. We've had, we've had now the rise of a global economy. Uh, manufacturing isn't as important as it was, but, right. but multinational corporations in a range of industries are very, very important. That change has, has, has brought a new the challenge of concentrated income, concentrated wealth. It's brought many good things as well. There's a lot of fantastic innovation, a lot of technological change that we've all, or many of us have shared in the benefits of around, you know, iPhones and computers and uh, and the Internet and on down the list. So so, um, there has been a lot of positive creativity in our economy over the last several decades, but we haven't taken the step back to say, hey, wait a minute. How do we enjoy the benefits of this dynamic economy, but also make sure that it's compatible 
with quality of life for everybody. It's compatible with a strong middle class. It's compatible with upward mobility and other American values. So again, that's the the kind of conversation that we need to get into. And the good news from our point of view is that in the end, what we sometimes call a new deal for a new economy, or sometimes call a rescue plan for, for the middle class, isn't all that hard. There are a few simple things that you could do that would rebuild the American middle class that would be analogous to sort of three or four of the main things that Roosevelt did in the 1930s. And and, um, if you took those steps, uh, we'd not only rebuild the middle class, but we'd also actually have a stronger economy. So, um, you know, fundamentally, we're optimistic, but, but we need a more creative political process. We're talking with Stephen Hertzenberg, Executive Director of Keystone Research Center, about what would FDR do. Interesting that you say it's it's not that complicated. And I know that in Roosevelt's second term, he had some real, real resistance. It's not that difficult, possibly, but... In his first term, I don't know how much resistance there was, and I'm not sure at what point Roosevelt was called a traitor to his class, because he he came from certainly the the upper class, the established elite aristocracy, but he wanted to, he recognized the importance for our nation's real security that a rising tide does, in fact, lift all boats. A rising tide doesn't always lift all boats. We've seen uh, uh, a rebound on the Wall Street, on the stock market, uh, so the the upper classes are doing quite well these days. You know, it's come back quite a bit. It's well over 10,000 on the Dow, but uh, over 10% unemployment at the same time. So the middle class is being really hollowed out, as as has been uh, talked about. But I wonder... Why are politicians not talking about a new New Deal, a post-industrial New Deal? There has got to be a lot of resistance to that coming from somewhere. Is it the fear of New Deal being big government, and of course everybody's against big government? What is the resistance to to having a jobs program, to put people to work, to rebuild our our, our uh, infrastructure and our economy. Where is the resistance coming from? Well, I mean, when I said it, it, it wouldn't be that hard to create a new deal for for a new economy, of course, what I meant is that you know, the, the 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 policies you need are actually not that hard. Right, to you don't have to reinvent outline. It. I did obviously politically. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an absolute. It's enormous challenge to advance the ideas, put together the winning coalition that can get things over the over the finish line. Yeah, you know, um, um, clearly. Um, you know, I, I think one of you, you used that wonderful phrase "traitor to his class," which people tagged Roosevelt with in the 1930s. And again, it, it, um, he was a person born of privilege and um, really had a, an inner confidence that that uh, was seemingly completely unshakable. And really, just uh, it feels like he was immune to. Whatever people called him, you know, it really didn't didn't matter. I mean, I think in in Britain, maybe in a, there's elements of Winston Churchill actually, who was also born to privilege, although 
had a challenged relationship with his dad. You know, I, <laughs> I don't know how far the analogy goes, but but so you 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 had in Roosevelt um, somebody who had again that confidence to kind of step back from the situation. I mean, um, the wheels were coming off. I mean, you talked about how bef- between uh, before 1936, you know, maybe had an easier time getting things through because actually pretty much everybody knew the wheels were, were coming off and, right. and, and things were broken and you just had to try some things. Right. Even if you didn't know exactly what you were doing, you had to throw some stuff against the wall and see what would stick and what, when stuff didn't stick, you had to throw some more stuff against the wall. So, there, I mean, there was an experimental process that took place there. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, when we fast forward to the current situation, I mean, I, I think clearly... Um, uh, there is a timidity that um, even we feel it. Yeah. You know, this is hmm. the, the 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 last twelve months is like the first time, you know, you can start you can you can talk about unions in this in this country and talk about the importance of unions to the middle class, right? And and um, and and not. Uh, Pull your punches, right? You I mean because because operating in policy dialogue and with certain even liberal elites, you you have situations where you know people are uh, you know fairly anti-union. Um, uh, think of unions as part of the problem, not part of the solution. Although they don't generally know that much about unions, and so I mean that's just one example. So you find because the debate there's a, there's a certain kind of self-reinforcing character to the narrowness of the debate and the fact that the ideas being put forward aren't equal to the challenges and the and, and the pressures in this case bearing down on the middle class. So I think that's, you know, that's that's one of the issues and and again one of the things that's that's helpful is that is that the economy doing very badly has opened up the debate. The jobs number nationally going above 10% Unemployment opened up the debate. If Obama gets through health care reform, um, you know, and if the economy continues actually to do better because of the Recovery Act that he steered, he steered through Congress, you're actually going to get a, a, a double belt of confidence. And I think, together with the fact that unemployment is still going to be way too high, you know, that could contribute to further opening up the debate. So I think I think you know both both Main Street and and people who like you Bert and 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 also like me who are policy wonks mm-hmm. maybe we're recovering our collective voice and uh-huh. I think if if we do that then then again we can have an honest conversation we don't have all the answers right. you know uh, but let's have an honest conversation about hey how do we how do we capture all the good things about this dynamic economy and the fact that we businesses know much better than they did 30 years ago how to manage people effectively, how to use technology effectively, how to develop uh, products and services that really meet the needs of different groups of customers. We don't all have to have a black, black model T anymore, right? There's all of these good things, uh, but, but then how do we combine that with some sensible regulations uh, and, and, and sensible policies in terms of the job market and the middle class so that our economy is not unstable and also so that we have a strong middle class that in the end right. provides 
becomes the engine again for another period of, 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 of stable growth. So I, I think, you know, hopefully we're in a process where, where we're going to work our way up to the scale of solutions that we need. We are talking with Stephen Herzenberg, Executive Director of the Keystone Research Center. And, you know, it's an interesting point as we, here we are almost at the end of uh, Obama's term. And you're right. I, I haven't really stopped to think about it. We can talk about these things now. It's not uh, just, you know, if you talked about it while uh, George W. Bush was still president, you know, people would look at it as if you had three heads. But right. now we can talk about these things because there is change, some change going on. And, right. and, and again, uh, if you just tuned in, that we're talking about what would FDR do now and what can we learn from FDR. Now, things are different back then. It was the height of industrialization. Cars were, were much in demand. They were a fairly new product. And we made a lot of stuff in this country. We're not making so much stuff anymore, except for weapon systems. We're really good at weapon systems, which, right. you know, there's a, a great market for that, unfortunately. But I wonder about, and, you know, the, the place of, of unions now. Unions were very important in helping to get us out of the last depression. Uh, I wonder what unions' role may be now in the post-industrial age. We don't hear a lot about union strength. Uh, you know, there's, there's divisions within uh, unions right now. And, uh, you know, now that we're not really making a lot of stuff, what, what, the ro- what might be the role of unions in, in getting us out of this great recession? It's a, it's a great question, and it's a critical question. Um, um, uh, here's here's the conclusion, and then and then I'll 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 flesh it out. I mean, um, uh, uh, if you want to rebuild the middle class in America, uh, I've been studying this question and thinking about this question as an economist for th- for thirty years. I don't know how to do that without rebuilding. Uh, and growing the labor movement, right? So, and I don't, I, I've not heard anyone offer a concrete suggestion, uh, you know, that that doesn't involve um, strengthening the labor movement, uh, you know, as 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 a key or even the key to rebuilding the, the, the middle class. But here's 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 the key thing, and and it, this is actually an example of a broader challenge. Listen, when the world changes. We, we all get stuck with old ideas about the role of government, um, about the role of, 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 of unions, um, uh, about the way uh, we, should, we should compete in the global economy. We all get stuck with old ideas, and we get stuck with old policies. And that's actually part of what the debate about regulation uh, that that has been has been most explicit in the area of financial markets is partly about, and so and so, again and again we face this challenge of okay the world has changed, um, the structure of our economy is different as you mentioned much less of it is in manufacturing now it's much more more global, uh, the pace of change, uh, you know, our ability to communicate quickly over long distances, you know, um, uh, those have all changed dramatically. But but the regulations that we've got in place, you know, haven't changed. So, and again, financial markets, we're at right. least discussing that now. 
we need to discuss it more when it comes to the labor market, everything from the minimum wage to limits on executive pay to the role of unions. Now, the, 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 the fundamental issue about unions is um, <clears throat> people now think of unions um, as the United Auto Workers or the United Steel Workers, e- even though you know, even though it's what seventy years or seventy-five years since the early nineteen thirties, um, the mental image of what a union is right. is still it's an organization that uh, organizes factory workers, protects against arbitrary supervision, uh, puts in place work rules and grievance procedures. Right. So the yeah okay, but here's the good news. I mean, in fact, in fact. That's not unions are just organizations of working people. They come in uh, really an almost limitless number of shapes and sizes. Um, so uh, actually, um, before the 1930s, the dominant form of union in the U.S. was something very different than the auto workers and the steel workers. It was an organization, right, of local craft workers from cigar makers to carpenters to plumbers. Hmm. And the role that those kinds of unions played in the economy was vastly different than the role that manufacturing unions play. So craft workers had a central role in developing workers' skills and through things like apprenticeship programs. Craft workers upheld skill levels um, and commitment to high-quality uh, was a central part of the identity of those kinds of unions. So, again, the, the the fundamental point is now the challenge we need to think about is how do unions fit into the economy we've got now? Right. Right. And how can they? What they the unions have to do a couple things. I mean, they obviously have to represent their members, but they also have to reconfigure themselves so that. Uh, uh, people can see how they benefit the broader society as well. Oh yeah, and and but again, so actually, when you so there are a bunch, there are are a b- growing number of examples which suggest the the forms that that um, new unionism, uh, uh, as we call it, uh, or next generation uh, unionism, as, as it's been called. Uh, you know what that looks like, and 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 the short story is something like this: um, most of our jobs now, more than three quarters, are actually, despite globalization, in service industries that can't go anywhere, that aren't going to China. So most of our jobs are in healthcare, or education, or janitorial services, or retail services, uh, you know, or uh, or or childcare, or long-term care. Right, you know, um, um, so. And if you do the numbers, more than three-quarters of our jobs and a higher proportion of our lower-wage and poverty-wage jobs are in those non-mobile services. Um, what we need to do, and, and there are clear examples of where this has been done, um, uh, <clears throat> the janitorial industry in Philadelphia is one, for example. What we need to do is, in those, in those service industries, whether people are paid 8 bucks an hour with no benefits or whether people are paid 15 bucks an hour with some benefits and maybe access to training and upward mobility is really that's a choice we get to make as a society the chinese aren't going to make that choice uh for us 
Mexico is not going to make that choice for us. So um, when you look at the hotel industry in Las Vegas, um, mm-hmm. you know, before 9-11 especially, although it's still, it's, you still see uh, this now, is, is that's a heavily unionized hotel industry. Um, those are middle-class jobs for housekeepers and for desk clerks. They have one of the most um, effective training, uh, the Culinary Institute, it's called, although it, it trains people in a much broader array of occupations than just the culinary arts. Um, and so people, you, know, um, you get elements, really, of the old craft model of unionism. And so what you, what, you, what you really end up with in these service industries, the potential you have is let's lift up wage standards, let's take jobs from being poverty wage or barely above poverty. Let's lift them up to the middle class. Uh, let's also add in more focus on training and, and apprenticeship and mentoring people so they can get better at the jobs they do and have more access to better jobs and and. And presto, what have you got? You've got a situation in which the American middle class is reborn, and you've got a situation also where customers and employers actually benefit from the positive roles that unions play uh, in, in fostering people's skills and commitment to the work they do. You cut turnover. So, so you know, uh, I've heard Boston managers who've, who've, uh, who've seen their uh, their company unionized and janitorial standards raised from eight dollars an hour to fifteen dollars an hour in 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 Boston. I've seen them talking about what a benefit that is and the reduced headaches they have and the fact that they can hold on to their customers because because um, the building owners that contract to this company for janitorial services their retention rate uh, since they since they were unionized and since they beefed up their skill development operation, their retention rate of customers has gone up a lot because because they're training their workers whether it's in language skills or whether it's in customer service uh, or whether it's in the more basic uh, responsibilities of office cleaning. You got a situation where the clients of the building owner, the people who rent the space, are more pleased with how clean the building is, how clean the bathrooms are. You know, so that's that's. I mean, in terms of the 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 concrete specifics, the the sure. core of new unionism is is going to be uh, it needs to grow in those service jobs that can't go anywhere, uh, lift those into the middle class, and there needs to be it's kind of back to the future in terms of craft unions, much more emphasis now on skill development right. and union shared responsibility for for skill development and quality work. We are talking with Stephen Hertzenberg, Executive Director of Keystone Research Center, about how some of the uh, things we learned in the last Great Depression can be uh, applicable today. And one thing I, I think when you talk about unions, you're right, people definitely get the old picture. You know, oh, isn't that something bygone? And, and you bring up some interesting points. And I, it seems to me that the middle class, what's left of it, is scared now, is really fearful, and people are holding on to what they have. Uh, and there's a lot of anger out there as well. And, uh, of course, I have to bring up the, the Tea Party people who are angry at, they're concerned about big government. People largely of lower income, not all the time, and certainly the people who are doing the advertising form of very high income, no question about that. And there's a lot of at least attempted manipulation going on. But there's this Tea Party anger, this 
populist anger. I've been frustrated that the right, you know, the, the hard right, the, the Sarah Palin wing of the, of the uh, Republican Party, uh, has been able to really grab that populist anger. But populism has been, in the past, and certainly for Franklin Roosevelt, uh, a, a motivating factor. One of my FDR, of course, had some great quotes, many great quotes. One of them was when he told activists within the Democratic Party, I agree with you. I want to do it. Now make me do it. There's no Huey Long now. You know, there's no <laughs> great lefty populist to to make Obama do this. Where is, and, and, and the middle class seems to be, you know, people have, have talked about ooh, sort of class division, class war. It seems like people on the hard right, the Tea Party people, would defend the top 1% and not identify with, with working class people. So <clears throat> how can the populist anger be used to make Obama do it? Um, it's it's a um, it's a great question, and 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 clearly, in terms of sort of grassroots popular movements, it doesn't feel like um, we 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 have the the kinds of pressure groups that that were part of what uh, pushed Roosevelt, right. um, uh, you know, in more progressive directions. You know, to head off uh, Upton Sinclair, who was running sure. for governor in California at one point. You know, Roosevelt co-opted some of his sort of progressive ideas. Right. You know, but but having said that, there are but there are some things that 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 probably didn't exist as much in the 1930s. So, I mean, there really is actually a a progressive message machine now. It may not be as um, <clears throat> On message, so to speak, <laughs> um, as as the the right tends to be, but yeah. but for example, when there was a this debate about death panels, yeah. right in the healthcare debate, right? right so right. so the the right was sort of uh, basically trying to put forward the idea that a central a central democratic goal in healthcare reform was to to have expert panels sitting around deciding when gram when you should pull the plug on grandma. Right. Um, I, you know, there was there was uh, a pretty effective, uh, I think, uh, propagation of of how outlandish that was. And 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 again, I think what happened is that is that um, the common sense of the American people kind of prevailed, and that I actually think uh, that whole episode helped move healthcare forward. Interesting. Uh, um, so yeah, I think it was so. so yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying because it was so nutty. Yeah. No, right, 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 right. Yeah, and, and people and people still do have an instinct for when they're being manipulated and they don't like that. Yeah. Um so I think I think that works in our favor. I think the other the other part about it is um low and middle income people and, and we you know, in Pennsylvania, the southwestern part of the state um has what we call here blue dog democrats. So that's oh, our yes. version of working people who have swung substantially since the early 1980s to the right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of it is, is um, you know, if your world falls partly economically apart, so in the case of southwestern Pennsylvania, if the steel industry collapses and the two forces you count on, the Democratic Party and labor unions, aren't able to help you cope with that, Right. You know, then then you're you're you know maybe going to get angry, or you're 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 
populism going to express itself in more conservative ways. So I think part of the secret here is um, uh, progressives, you know, have to get more concrete about how they're going to help um, those mm-hmm. low and uh, low and lower middle income folks who who might otherwise uh, be uh, susceptible to right wing populism. Yeah. Uh, so so I think when you know when you say when you push harder in terms of let's moderate executive pay and push harder in terms of left up wages at the bottom, then then you you know that's going to bring you some more you know some more support when you push harder for investment in infrastructure and investment in the green economy and that translates in tangible ways into uh you know the new job creation and declining unemployment and and to new opportunities in green manufacturing that some some of the people in those working class communities you know, can get those jobs, then then you're going to win some people back. And again, my own my own view is that in the end, when 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 you begin to paint a picture of a rebuilt middle class, which has these kinds of locally based unions that are that are lifting up the bottom third of our labor market now and lifting that bottom third into the middle class, you know, and suddenly people see that hey, I can work at the local restaurant. But not have my wor- my world fall apart, or hey, yeah. now the local Walmart's going to have to pay me twelve or fourteen or fifteen bucks an hour, right? right. So I think I think again, with the more the prescriptions become uh, you know, <clears throat> become clear, and and people see that okay, um, uh, <clears throat> I can rally behind these progressive uh, politicians because. Um, it's working. They're, they're not blowing smoke because it's working. Yeah, that's in the end. Yeah, that's right. It, that's right. It has to work, yeah. and people have to see. But so, and people have to see that it could work, and that you're on a path, yeah. right? And that's and that's, you know. So again, that's fingers crossed. What I'm what I what I'm <laughs> hoping might happen out of, I mean, two, two things. First of all, the economy is recovering. Uh, it's not going great guns by any means. But um, unemployment has stopped growing. Um, the rate of job loss has gone down dramatically. People have seen a demonstration of the fact that decisive government action uh, led by the Obama administration has worked compared to the dithering of the Bush administration as we sank into this great recession. And I do think people will see that more and more with the the health care. It could have been better, but... It's it's something I don't know exactly when people will start to feel that people really need to fear it to uh, feel it to get that that confidence going and of course Roosevelt said uh, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself and it's about confidence confidence has a lot to do with it we believe we can do that exactly I think you're exactly right so you get you're right right and then and then you, then people get the sense that hey these folks are trying to build something yeah you know so. I, so I don't care if unemployment's still nine percent in November two thousand ten. These people are on a path. Yeah. Yeah. Let's give them a vote of let's give them a a, a, a vote of confidence and, and let's tell them redouble your effort. You know, give them a little more power in Congress, 
you know, and, and keep building that green economy. Keep rebuilding that middle class. You build that skills infrastructure for the 21st century, right? Yeah. You go, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean and again, when, when, I tell you, in 1936, our economy in the U.S. was, was still in deep trouble. Yes. Uh, but, but, but we were on a path. And, 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 I mean, clearly unemployment was a lot less than 25%, uh, which was its peak. And so Roosevelt had already demonstrated in very tangible ways real progress. But, but our economy in 1936 was a heck of a lot worse than it is now. For sure. <laughs> um, and people really, you know, voted for a man with a plan, with a, with a sense of purpose, and who was on a path. And that's, and that's what we need to get to by, by next you know, November. And I, I think, I think if, if we do that, um, then, then, uh, you know, progressive politicians will be rewarded and they'll get more time, um, to, and, 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 and hopefully they'll, they'll, um, be inspired to, to, to be more ambitious and, and, uh, it's absolutely not, not, a, not, you know, it's not about killing the golden goose. It's not, it's not about, you know, being quote, anti-capitalist. It's a, it's about, let's put in place the, the sensible regulations, uh, a little bit more equity. Let's invest more in the skills of everybody. You know, if we do things right, we get a stronger economy as well as a, a rebuilt middle class. We are talking on Portside with Stephen Hertzenberg, Executive Director of Keystone Research Center, about what would FDR do? There's so much to talk about. And one of the, uh, the, the great things about the New Deal in specific, uh, there were some wonderful people involved, they tried something, was government involvement in creation of jobs. You had the CCC, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, which put a lot of unemployed people to work doing what we would call environmental work. You had the WPA, Works Progress Administration, a lot of government programs. And there seems to be agreement by a lot of people that, as you say, we need a massive, massive investment in an environmentally sustainable, low-carbon economy implemented in a way that rebuilds our fragile manufacturing base, and expands the number of family-sustaining jobs. It makes so much sense. There's so much work to do. There's so, much, so many people who need work. Why isn't this happening? Well, I mean, there is more discussion of that now. So the, so the House, the, the U.S. House last week, passed a, job, a Main Street jobs bill. Uh-huh. Uh, it's $154 billion. Um, it's, uh, it's expected to be, a job bill is expected to be taken up by um, the Senate in the new year. They have been a little busy uh, with health care. Yeah. Um, and so that House, that, that bill that passed the House, uh, includes an, a component that's public uh, public service job creation. Uh-huh. And so it actually includes, I mean, um, um, my wife uh, happens to work for the, uh, the the conservation agency here in Pennsylvania, and and loves the example of the Civilian Conservation Corps. Oh, and, yeah. and actually, there's a the component of the bill uh, that would go for kind of green jobs within within you know uh, national parks and state parks, and and uh, so um, yeah, so so that. <clears throat> So there is now again pragmatic discussion. I mean, it, yes. it's it's it, it goes it goes back to 
we talked earlier about um, how at least progressives have felt for really for 30, 30 years that, that, that they have to pull their punches, right? And they can't be sort of sure. open and honest. Yeah. But again, that, that, I think this is another example where suddenly um, by talking about public job creation, instead of being laughed out of the room, right, right. Then, then you can have a conversation. You've got all these needs, these social needs. You've got these people who are sitting at home with these critical skills, how about we bring uh, some modest additional resources together and have the people help, um, uh, you know, meet those needs and, and, you know, create those assets that we can all benefit from, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road, right? right. So, so it's, it's, again, that, that's very liberating. It's, you know, that we can talk uh, about it. Yeah. It's just about it's just about problem solving. It's about collective problem solving. So again, we've we've had this we, we've had this extended period in our political discourse where where you almost weren't allowed to talk about collective problem solving. That's for sure. And uh, you know, people, even some Democrats, uh, some who who might not consider themselves blue dogs, say, "Oh, but that would be deficit spending." We can't. I mean, we have to worry about the deficit, uh, and there are these deficit hawks. How, how can you, you know, argue on that point? I, I guess it's a bit of uh, John Maynard Keynes' uh, uh, ec- economics that uh, Roosevelt did rely on. Uh, what's the argument against, uh, you know, the deficit hawks? Well, you're 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 right on target. I mean, um, the only way we're going to solve our uh, accumulated national debt, right, um, is with a strong, growing economy. So job one, in terms of long-term deficit reduction, actually has to be um, stoking the economy now so that um, we get faster growth, um, and so that the private sector um, uh, gets more confident about creating jobs and about investing in the future, that's how we get long-term deficit reduction. So we actually, <clears throat> it's smart to spend money now uh, to kickstart the economy and to get back to robust growth sooner. Because because that's how you get the government revenue you need to to ultimately uh, <clears throat> reduce the, the the size of 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 the debt. So you know if if we if we if we I mean again the same deficit hawks a lot of those people were were against the recovery act right a yeah, lot of those people sure. were let's just stand and watch while the economy uh, descends into uh, <laughs> a downward spiral and we get to twenty five percent unemployment. Well, I mean, obviously, that would have <clears throat> our uh, our our deficit would be uh, dramatically uh, larger if we'd let that happen. So again, I, I think um, so. Yeah, as a matter of simple economics, um, uh, they're wrong. I mean, the, the short run the short run action is you said it, John Maynard Keynes. It's let's let's get the economy going again. Um, you know, again, some of these people aren't aren't really making arguments because they believe them. They're 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 making arguments because they want unemployment to be fifteen percent in November two thousand ten because right. because they, they yeah they want the, the Democrats uh, to take a big hit and and uh, you know why exactly they really want that is a little bit of a mystery to me, but um, yeah. So well, so that yeah. The, uh, 
Go ahead. Sorry. Another thing that I that I wonder about is back in the 1930s, uh, obviously well before the 50s, when we had you know really explosive consumerism. It, from an environmental standpoint, now can we go back to uh, consumerism, making more stuff, buy more stuff, filling up the landfills? And you know th- that was the case in the 30s. We needed to make more stuff, but but I and and priming the pump was essential to getting people to to make more stuff and to buy more stuff. Um, I, I wonder. You know, there's this concern about uh, doing that yet again and having to measure our economic strength by by that uh, uh, consumerism, fueling the fire of consumerism. Work, you know, in a post-industrial age, as you said before. Uh, what about uh, converting that and, and somehow, as as Van Jones wanted to do before he was fired, to uh, you right. know, right. there's this whole that whole political dynamic as well. How can we? adapt the priming the pump to a new, perhaps, you know, something beyond mere consumerism? Well, I mean, partly we, 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 we have somewhat adapted, right? So priming the pump now does partly mean getting more people to go to the movies. So, so <laughs> when true. those seats are full at, you know, 650 or 750 a movie ticket. I don't know where you live. That, there are more than that here. Well, all right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, come to central Pennsylvania, folks. <laughs> it's a low cost of living. Um, you know, we, um, there's no more resources used up uh, when we fill the seats at the movie theater. And so when people get uh, more health care, uh, when people get more education, a lot of the things that we consume now, particularly services, uh, but even, but even you know, um, uh, information technology products, I mean, you know, aren't, resource intensive the way a washing machine and a car are resource intensive right so so um but but clearly we have some so beyond the changes in consumption that 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 make it possible to prime the pump without without uh you know making the global climate change challenge that much worse um you know there are some more fundamental changes we're going to have to make but but um so that we reduce energy consumption and so that more and more of our resources are used in sustainable ways so in fact they're ultimately reused um but in order for those things to happen uh right so let's you know in order to fight the common enemy um, called environmental degradation. We need to be united. In order to be united, we have to have a strong middle class. You can't. You can't. It's. It's. It's going to be much easier to have really aggressive environmental policies if people feel like um, they're economically safe and their families economically safe. You know, so they, they, they have a good job and they won't lose it. Or even if they do lose it, there's a commitment to, uh, hey, we're going to have a strong middle class and we're going to have a low unemployment. You can take that for granted. If you could take that for granted, right. take away that fear, right. fear. Then, then, yeah, then you can't have right-wing populism that attacks strong climate change legislation or other strong environmental legislation. Yeah. So it, I, I think in the end we... we, we yeah, we have to. We have. We have. 
we have to grow in a way, or we have to succeed economically in a way that everyone feels safe, and, and yeah, and then we then we can solve the environmental challenges. Boy, I think you really hit the nail on the head because a lot of people, you know, in the tea parties and things like that, have been saying, "Oh, come on, these liberal elites uh, are, you know, the Volvo liberals, whatever." They're talking about environmentalism, global warming. We don't care about that, you know. Oh, come on. Get us some jobs. I think you raise an excellent point there. If people feel secure, then you can talk about that stuff, but not really until. Interesting points. And there's, there's lots of things that can be done in terms of uh, energy conservation, retrofitting. Old buildings can be part of a new WPA or CCC. There's so much that can be done that, that will benefit the middle class, which has taken such a hit. I got to ask one more thing about Obama and the the finance industry. It, you know, people were angry about bailing out the financial industry. It seemed to be rewarding those who destroyed the system. What do you think, Stephen Hertzenberg, would FDR say about the bailout of the finance industry and the Rubenites being back in power at, around the White House economics table? It's a you know it's a it's a great question. Um, uh, you know, I mean, he, I think, he didn't do think, that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think if you look at the um, uh, of all the things that Obama's done, you know, the the um, the uh, the uh, you picked the area where I would have the greatest reservations. So I don't, <laughs> you know, um, when he appointed Tim Geithner, uh, the former head of the New York Fed, and then a you know, in the uh, Treasury Department under Clinton, you know, the sec- Treasury Secretary, and and, uh, uh, and then when he appointed uh, Larry Summers, uh, who actually I knew slightly when I was at graduate school, um, uh, and actually knew slightly when I was in the Clinton administration Labor Department in the first year of, of the Clinton administration, talking about NAFTA issues, um, you know, I, um, I, I was disappointed. You know, I would have much rather had, I don't know, Paul Krugman. <laughs> Absolutely. The New York Times columnist oh, as, yeah. as, 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 as the head of the Council of Economic Advisors or in some kind of role, or Joseph Stiglitz, who's another Nobel Prize winning economist who's been, who's been uh, you know, more progressive and ahead of the curve. So, so you know, um, again, in, in fairness to Obama, um, you know, um, he um, clearly... Uh, needed to um he needed the financial system to uh, come back to stability and you know uh maybe he didn't know where else to go mm. you know maybe you know uh but uh he's still in charge and so again i what i what what i uh, so I, again i i'm not i'm not uh <clears throat> i was heartened there's a story about summers in uh, uh i think it was in the new yorker um uh, and and it, <clears throat> apparently Obama likes to make fun of Larry Summers because Summers is always talking in terms of probabilities, like there's a 75% chance this will happen and 25% chance that will happen. So Obama apparently makes jokes about there's a 20% chance he's going to wear a black suit. And <laughs> so I don't know. I, I mean, I think there is really some, there really, uh, it probably is true that Obama is is in fact in charge. And so it's not like he's, they work for him, 
Um, and so again, let's let's hmm. uh, hopefully that's an early learning experience. And as <laughs> as Obama grows more ambitious uh-huh. uh, with some success on healthcare and and on the economy, you know, maybe Summers and Geithner become a footnote uh, to history. That would be nice. I like that. You say, you know, it's great to hear. As you seem fairly optimistic. That's that's very nice to hear. If people want to hear more about uh, what Keystone Research Center is doing or, or get otherwise inspired, what uh, would you suggest they look at on the old Internet? Thank, thanks for asking, Bert. Our, our webpage is www.keystoneresearch.org. You know, if you forget that, you can just Google Keystone Research and we'll come up. And yeah, there you can find uh, you know a, a lot of a lot of the things we write in, in much more detail in terms of how you get to this new deal for a new economy. Again, our 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 basic theme is that uh, that kind of prescription, where we we can strengthen our economy, but also make it work better for people and and for the environment. You know, it's there for the taking and. Uh, we can do there, it. there are a few simple elements we need to to, to put in place from uh, from reducing executive pay at the top to lifting yes. the pay of um, minimum wage workers and other workers at the bottom to facilitating the growth of new unions in low and middle wage service industries to updating our skills infrastructure because we are in the knowledge economy and workers and businesses yes. um, both uh, both need uh, an updating of our our skills development and unemployment insurance system and then investing in that in that uh, sustainable green economy that we've been talking about. The, the, the components uh, of the next New Deal are in broad terms, uh, you know, clear enough. And so we just need to, we need to generate that political will and that political pressure and, and uh, get it done. Thank you so much. It's, it's good to uh, feel optimistic every now and then. Keystone Research Center Executive Director Stephen Hertzenberg, Thanks very much for being with us. Bert, thanks so much for the opportunity. Take care. All right. See if we can get working. Bringing back jobs. Get, get, get working. Work. Stop by just the same All my children, they're all grown 